Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 139. On today's episode, we tackle what it's like growing a business, all the different pressures that a business brings to you, especially if you're venture capitalist backed and how your identity ties so much into the baby that you create and what it's like reinventing yourself afterwards. On the show today, I have Rand Fishkin, who is one of the world's most famous experts in SEO and famous also for Whiteboard Fridays that hundreds of thousands of blog followers have grown to absolutely love. He created a company called Moz with his mom after dropping out of college and it was an SEO consulting company that led into the Moz toolbar and Rand raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists and he as he was growing the company he explains what it was like having to let go his mom and as he started taking over Then he ended up stepping down and essentially exiting his own company that he created. And we really dive into how difficult it can be when you have the pressures of grow, 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 and what that means to you and the expectations you put on yourself. But then also what happens that when you exit a company that is so integrated into who you are and how the world sees you. So Rand's in the middle of reinventing himself because now he has a company called SparkToro that he gets into that I'm really excited to watch how he takes us to market and how he helps change himself. And he's got completely different intentions and motivations of what he's doing with his current company. And it's from all the experiences that he had growing and exiting Moz. And if you really want to dive into this subject, Rand will talk about it, but he wrote a book called Lost and Founder, which gives all of the ins and outs of the trials and tribulations of the startup world. But even if you're not in the startup world or in the tech world, this is a great episode because Rand and I have a very real conversation about how a company can be so integrated into who you are and what you stand for and what other people view you as that it's just, it's really an eye opener and a good conversation for anybody to listen to as they're looking at what should they do with their business and how does their personality and their vision and their passion tie into what they do for a living. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Rand Fishkin. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Rand, how you doing? Ryan, great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited because not only before I got into the world of, you know, the podcasting and the, and the online space, I didn't really know what uh, Moz was. And then all of a sudden I heard, heard the white whiteboard for Fridays. I got exposed to a lot of your stuff. And so I've been following you. So then when I read the uh, article about you talking about tiny seeds uh, and then um, Rob Walling, who's been on the show, and then I kind of dove in and I didn't really fully understand the story that um, with you and the, the company that you built, and then you wrote a book about it. So for the listeners that might not know about you, let's go back. Like, Rand, how did you start the business? And I, I mean, you, and what was the what was the business that you created? And then um, we can kind of go into it, go into the story you got. Yeah, sure. So my mom, Jillian, started a company in 1981. That was a small business marketing consultancy, right? Logo, letterhead, design, kind of classic uh, marketing pre-internet world. And in the late 90s, I started, in, well, I was still in high school, like 95, 96, 97, uh, started building some websites. And occasionally, I would do some sort of work for her and her clients if they wanted to get a site going. And uh, in 2001, I dropped out of college to do that full time, basically work with my mom, design and build websites. And we were pretty terrible at that, kind of crashed, <laughs> crashed the business that she had built, um, you know, sent it deep into debt. We just made every mistake in, in the book. And when we found ourselves deep in debt, the only sort of you know, silver lining was we had, we had been subcontracting folks to do search engine optimization, right? The practice of getting mm-hmm. websites, uh, more traffic from the organic and non-paid listings in Google and at the time, MSN search and Yahoo and all those. And we couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors anymore. So I had to do it myself. 
I learned the practice. I found it both very frustrating and very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I started this blog kind of on the side in my own time called SEO Moz that described the practice of, you know, brands learning SEO and like, here's what he's thinking about. And, and every night I blogged on this, you know, on this site, I was experimenting with it and trying a bunch of SEO tactics, all this stuff. Uh, well, that blog started to gain popularity and then attracted customers that we were able to, you know, turn into the way we turned around the business. Mm -hmm. What year was that that you were starting to turn that around? Probably the start was maybe, oh, end of 04 into 05. And then by 2007, summer of 2007, we'd finally kind of paid off our debt. And um, earlier that year, in, at the start of 2007, this is kind of how we became Moz. In 2007, we launched a suite of software tools that we had built for ourselves. They were just like little mini SEO tools that we used to sort of automate some of our consulting tasks, mm -hmm. and reporting and that sort of stuff. I wanted to make them available for free. Our developer, Matt, was like, no, dude, we don't, we don't, we can't for the bandwidth. I was like, fine, can we put up a PayPal paywall so I can at least show this off to some people? Fast forward six months, the PayPal paywall for 39 bucks a month is now generating the same amount of revenue as the consulting business. Mm -hmm. and we're like, whoa, I, I think, I think SaaS might be a business. I mean, we don't even know what to call it, right? We're, <laughs> right, right. We have no word for this. Super cool. So then what was the, well, you know, what, what was the direction as you're, as you're seeing that? I mean, what was the conversations you have with your mom and your developers? Like how did, like, what were some of the milestones of creating Moz? And cause I know that the, the premise is that you ended up taking on some VC and there's a lot of uh, trials and tribulations and thoughts that you've got behind how you guys went about doing that. But like, what, what kind of, what are some of the, the steps that led to the, the structure that you ended up with? Yeah. I mean, we, I, we ended up with a very classic venture backed structure. So we essentially, you know, at the at the end of 2007, raised a round of financing. A couple of VCs had reached out to me actually and said like, hey, would you would you be interested in turning this into something bigger? We think that SEO is an exciting space and we want to place a bet there and we think you're a good choice for it. And so yeah, we we said Did you know what VC yes. was then? Did you like like what was your level of understanding of what VC Oh I Googled venture capital when I got the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally I was like oh uh, ignition capital venture partners. Okay. Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but they, I mean, they, they made us a great deal. I, I outlined it a little bit in the book, but basically we raised 1.1 million, gave away 14% of the company and a board seat. I mean, just stellar deal maintained, uh, a ton of autonomy and control with, with one exception, right? Which is anytime you raise venture, your goal goes from, you know, build a profitable, sustainable business to build something that's going to exit and, you know, produce a massive amount of capital for your investors mm -hmm. or, or, you know, kind of die trying. Right. Right. Yeah. And so we, we maintain control. I mean, I, I outlined an offer that we had the only offer to sell the business that we had while I was CEO for the, for the seven and a half plus years that I was CEO. We, we had one offer in 2010 or 11 to sell and we could have taken it. Um, it would have been, you know, phenomenal deal, probably would have been a more phenomenal deal than, you know, um, whatever might happen in the future, even, even with, you know, Mazda's mm -hmm. growth uh, and turn that down was, uh, you know, I thought, I thought we were worth more. I thought we could do even more. And then we did in 2012, we raised a large round, 18 million in financing. Uh, from InVenture, more venture capital, uh, 3 million more from Ignition, and 15 from a, a group called Foundry. Uh, and Foundry is based in Boulder, Colorado. I think Brad Feld is a you know, very well-known person in sort of the startup and technology world. And Brad, Brad and I formed a friendship, and um, he joined our board of directors, uh, you know, invested this large sum of money, and then we, I would say, basically wasted most of it um, doing doing things that we thought would bring growth, but uh, instead really took us very far off track. Um, a lot of poor strategic decisions. And as we go that. into this, Rand, I'm I'm curious because you know I I actually uh, about a year ago I interviewed the head of uh, VC for Ernst and Young. Very interesting, very interesting guy. You know the, the sheer amount of deals that he sees is like pretty crazy and. You know, one of the things that we were tying now, now Ernst and Young, so they're they're an accounting firm and consulting, yeah, right? So, what UI. does the head of VC do there? 
so like they like i mean ey is like i'm actually this we're total sidetrack but like a, a lot of the the big the big uh firms like that they're building building out big consulting practices mm -hmm. yeah so like m a advisories firms or services are raising oh. capital or i mean like so this guy i mean there's crazy things that he's seen but you know one of the things you know from his perspective about like you know putting a lot of the deals together and you know i haven't had a ton of people on the show but they, like the there's been a constant theme the same thing is with private equity is money comes with different personalities right so it's does it, and i know you've probably got a lot of thoughts on this but it's like, as you were you know googling vc you know like from, from there to like the different rounds that you did how did like because in one of the the blog posts that you wrote when right as you were leaving is you know you kind of shift the focus, right? So you shift from like building a really cool product that is serving your customers to now you get different intentions. There's an exit, there's different pressures, there's different conversations. Can you explain how that that dialogue changed behind the scenes? Gosh, yeah. Um, I think what's funny is it is less, less explicit and less directed than you might think, right? So it's not, hey, you get in a boardroom and these investors tell Rand, this is what we want to see. We need you to go this direction. Let's get it done. No, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. It's more sort of this, you're, you move from an ecosystem of how do I build something sustainable and profitable and exciting and do things that I think my customers want to, you know, going home at night and wondering, how do I, how do I become worth a billion dollars, right? How do I, how do I turn Moz into something that's worth a billion dollars? And so that is, but by, by its very structure, a very, very risky business, right? So you, you are incentivized and sort of encouraged and supported to take those big picture risk, but risks, but not forced to. There was never a time when Brad and Michelle, my, my investors, said, Rand, we feel like you're playing this safe and we'd like you to be more aggressive. Mm -hmm. Never, not, not once, not explicitly, certainly. But, you know, you're hanging out with a different kind of crowd and you're sort of being shown different examples of what, what a successful company is considered to be, right? So yeah. there's sort of this, you know, natural thing in the venture world where, you know, you see your investors talk about and write about and um, speak on panels about like, hey, you know, we need to shift the mentality of entrepreneurs away from these, you know, single base hit lifestyle businesses, which they use as a pejorative, right? Mm -hmm. they, they sort mm -hmm. of trying to insult you if you make $10 million a year or $50 million a year or $100 million a year, right? And, and sort of encourage folks to think bigger, right? We need disruptive companies. We need companies that are um, world-changing, not these you know, little piddly things. That, and, and so you start to, I, I don't know if you start to, right? But Speaking I started to, yeah, right, right. you know, I was... I was taken in by this as well, right? I thought I thought of myself as not a successful entrepreneur, right? But rather someone who was sort of striving to deserve the funding and the recognition and the company and the title. How did that change your uh, your relationship with the business and your customers and your passion? Yeah, absolutely. To to totally, totally different sort of thing, right? It goes from, man, you know, this. I feel like this feature would really help our customers. I want to. I want to build that to, ooh, that, that is probably incremental progress. And incremental progress is kind of, why waste the time, mm -hmm. right? Being a little more valuable than we were last month or last year, that is not going to produce the returns. How, how do we turn this into a, you know, a business that's, yeah, sort of. A billion dollars, right? Yeah, you, know, you got to be north of 100 million in revenue to kind of IPO. And mm -hmm. that's probably you know, and, and you want to be growing at a significant rate. So you, in this weird way, you don't want to reach a hundred million by growing at 10 or 15% year over year because the market won't value you. And, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to have a, a lousy IPO if anyone will even buy the stock. What you really want to do is show north of 30% year over year growth. So you kind of want to have this like, hey, it's fine if we have a few like slow years as long as that then hockey Accelerate stick, typical curve. hockey stick, right? <laughs> yeah, massively again. So it's it's a strange, strange ecosystem, um, strange incentives. Did you, when you were, you know, what I find 
you know, you went into it when you like just going back to 39 bucks a month and all of a sudden it's half, half of the consulting to you're now trying to be a billion dollars. I mean, there's a massive kind of mind shift that you have to probably go through. I mean, yeah. did you enjoy it? Did you, how did, like, what was your experience with that where now that's what you're thinking about every day instead of becoming, you know, solving the problem? of the, the marketplace, or I mean, technically you're kind of probably trying to do both. The same yeah, way. you're trying to do both for sure, right? So, I, I mean, you know, I don't mean to say, you don't, you don't ever take your eye off the ball of how do we serve customers, right. it's just how do we serve customers in a way that's worth, you know, a billion dollars instead of, mm-hmm. hey, how do we make sure that this is worth slightly more than it was last month? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that the mindset shift for me was exciting, it was interesting, you know, I, I sort of fell into that path of like, oh, I, I'm, I'm leveling up in my thinking and I'm being a bigger, broader, you know, more intelligent, more savvy CEO. Uh, and when I reflect back on that, I realized that I, I think what was actually happening is I am playing more towards the desires of, of late stage capitalism and dollars that are seeking, you know, growth returns rather than doing something that I personally think is the best or most enjoyable or thing that will make the world or my little world or our customers' world or our employees' world the best that it can be. Mm-hmm. And those things don't always compete. Sometimes sometimes they are in alignment, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that I was truly aware, right? You're swimming in water, you don't know you're in it. Totally. And I think, you know, no matter what, partners you're bringing on if it's capital. I mean, there's a different, there's different people now sitting at the table, right? Different intentions, different purposes, the exit strategy. So I think it just, you know, one of the big things, whether it is people coming in with private equity or VC or whatever it is, partners is just making sure you're constantly in, in alignment and it's just things will, things will change. Yeah. And maybe for the, can it, for the listeners, Ryan, can you kind of just give us the, the, kind of the overarching sum, summary of kind of the, the milestones that you went through and then how you ended up now at your current place, because I think we can kind of go back and I mean, you got a lot of lessons when you wrote the book about it and just how did you get to the point where you are today? Sure. Uh, let's see. So I, uh, I became Mazda CEO in 2007, taking over from my mom, which was kind of a tough situation for sure. Um, that was what our investors had kind of asked. And well, so we had a tough, tough about, about that. Yeah. It was a hard one. So what, what was stuff about it? Sorry. Like, is there, was it? Oh, that... well, I mean, you know, this is a company that she'd been running for 25 years and you know, that, that she had started and founded. I think it, I think it was, um, it's kind of an ego hit to have this like, Hey, it, it, there's two, right. I think there's two competing things for her. There's like, I'm really proud of my son. I'm excited for, you know, his future and what he's doing with this business, but also like, this is a thing we did together and Ivo has been the CEO. And, you know, now these people who are coming in and giving us money are saying like, no, we need, you know, we need you to step down. We're putting this other person in place. I, I think there's probably some, you know, I, I suspect I haven't actually talked to her about this, but I, I, I suspect in, in reflection, right. There's some feelings of like, gosh, is this ageism? Is this sexism? Is this both? And I think that that, yeah, that had to hit hard. So it was, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, painful. And painful. Your guys, was your guys' relationship pretty pretty cordial after that? I mean, was it still same as or a little bit different? I think it, I think it suffered and definitely was, um, yeah, not not the same, not the same. I was in the family business, man. I totally. No, yeah, I mean, it's just like yeah, yeah. You've been right. You've been in a family business. I'm sure you've talked to many folks who have, and I, I, the stories that I always hear are it very rarely goes well. Right. Well, it's like this whole, I'm going out to pasture when that's like, how do you, you know, like you said, there's so many different layers to the onion. And so, yeah. I mean, so after they put you in at CEO was the, what was the, the direction and how did, yeah. yeah. So Moz basically from there grew, the software part of the business grew at hundred percent year over year for the next seven years. And then sort of in year, in year eight, which would have been 2013, um, we, you know, we, we sort of plateaued that to 50%. Well, plateaued. It, the growth rate <laughs> shrank, right? Yeah. It went down to 50%. Uh, this was sort of part of that like strategy I had after raising the money in 2012 and, you know, taking my eye off the SEO ball. But basic story was there was that we 
we had a belief, although I'm going to say I broadly had a belief that like Moz should try and integrate all these web marketing tactics and stop putting all our eggs in the SEO basket exclusively, both from a risk profile model, because, you know, who knows what Google will do, what will happen with SEO, but also because uh, we think we can become, you know, a giant company if we invest in all these other forms of web marketing as well. And uh, it turns out we, we did that at the worst, worst possible time. So probably from 2012 to 2018, maybe even into this year, I would say, uh, the SEO field has grown faster than it ever grew. And it, it sort of got rid of the old reputation that it had for 15 years prior of being this you know, skeezy, scuzzy place that you know, no one wants to play. Now, now it's sort of like well-respected. Every Fortune 500 has a huge SEO team and department. You know, every publisher worries about and thinks about this. Uh, it's lost the, the the nasty reputation that it once had. The number of professional SEOs has just skyrocketed. And Moz in in twenty let's say twenty fourteen still probably uh, what would have been the market leader. Like if you would you know surveyed ten thousand SEOs mm -hmm. and said what SEO tool do you use, it probably would have been. 40 to 50% would have said us and then a variety of, of our competitors. Mm -hmm. Today, that is probably down to 15 or 20%, maybe even lower. Moz is technically bigger than it is, but the SEO field grew much faster mm -hmm. and several of Moz's competitors kind of took advantage of the fact that, hey, they're taking their eye off the SEO ball. Let's go, let's go pursue mm -hmm. that. Um, but let me go answer your question about the big milestones. So yeah, uh, 20... So we were in 2013, which was sort of my last full year as CEO, we did about uh, just under, I think, 30 million in revenues, so maybe right, right around 29 million. And then 2014, I stepped down as CEO and promoted my longtime chief operating officer uh, to the role, Sarah Bird, who is still Moz's CEO today. And what was um, the, the reasoning behind that? Was the like, because so right around that time, you're, you're kind of switching tactics and strategies. And it was what was the underlying uh, conversations and theme behind the the reason you stepped down? Uh, yeah, so I wrote about this on the blog and and also in the book. But um, I basically was struggling with depression at the time, and kind of got the message from you know my team and um, my wife and and lots of other people that like, hey, this is kind of an unsustainable situation, and and we're worried about you. I was worried about me. And so I said, you know, I thought that I could maybe take some of that pressure off and also, you know, be, do more of the things that I love to do, which was not really managing people and growing a big company in terms of number of people, but, but rather, you know, focus on product and on strategy and on marketing and those kinds of things. Um, at that time, I, I had this, you know, my, my vision was like, okay, this other thing did not work out. We need to return to SEO. Let's go, let's go back to focusing on SEO, let's not take our eye too far off this ball. Um, unfortunately, I think that you know turned out that that was not what how the new CEO felt. And despite lots of conversations, kind of ahead of time about hey, here's the you know here's how I want to keep participating, and I'd like to you know still have the sort of some influence here. I, I, I think I think some influence is kind of all that I had after that, and I that actually really was very, very hard for me. I, I think disassociating myself from, hey, Moz is not doing as well as it used to do. You know, the growth rate slipped from 50% to 20% to 12% to like, you know, seven or 8%. And all these years, you know, I'm just pounding the table at the board meetings like, what are we doing? This is all wrong. You know, everybody else is like, it's fine. It's cool. And Rand is just, ah! <laughs> um, insane and infuriated and uh yeah so eventually i think that that kind of led to like a breaking point between myself and the ceo and um you know, not sort of not just professionally but personally and so then then i uh somewhere between you know halfway between was asked to leave the company and decided to leave the company mm -hmm. like right in the middle there and i left in what was that just almost exactly a year ago so uh, beginning of 2018, um, left the company full time. I'm, I'm still the chairman of the board, uh, technically, and um, you know, obviously a, a large shareholder, but uh, not involved in day-to-day -day stuff. So 
you know, and I appreciate you sharing that, Ryan. And I know, and I know you've got that a lot of the stuff out there too, because you, you you publish a lot of stuff. But I think it's it's something that you know the experience that you went through is very similar to like even though I even myself a lot of the people that have been on my show, there's so much emotional and identity tied up oh, into yeah. the business, and it's like it's very difficult. For, that, that, honestly, that's where the whole life after business came from. It, there wasn't a, enough at the very beginning to really tie into that, like the psychological stuff of this. And I know Sherry uh, Walling talks about some of that, but like how you know, explain maybe, you know, your journey through that. Like, how did, like, how did you deal with the fact that like, this is your baby, you know? And, and I think it's even more when you're in like the coding business or online, cause it's like literally like a, a piece of artwork. Right. And then there's people there that yeah. are your culture and reflection of you. Like, how did you, how, did, how, how have you been dealing with that? Or how, how did that go for you? Yeah. Bad, real bad. But <laughs> it did not go well. Uh, I think it was very, you know, mentally and emotionally draining and, and really challenging. I, I think I'm generally a person who's pretty good at processing emotions and working on self-awareness and being thoughtful and mindful and, and trying to be, you know, I try to be kind both to others and to myself, you know, about the mistakes of the past. But I mean, I remember an email thread between uh, myself and Brad Feld. I think, I think maybe the whole board was on it. I, I can't remember, but, um, Brad said something like, you know, you, you've got to stop beating yourself up for the mistakes of the past. And I think I replied with something like, they're my mistakes. They're hard earned. And I get to beat myself up as hard as I want back off. <laughs> Who says that? You know, that's a, that's a crazy mind that's going there but that that is how i felt for years right for years i was like i you know i screwed up taking my off the seo ball i screwed up stepping down as ceo i screwed up with you know hiring these different people and um i screwed up with not hiring these other people i um you know i screwed up with timing in terms of product and and market and pricing and all, all sorts of strategy stuff right and so that's, how, that's how business is. Like you learn, right? You're supposed to learn and then you get better at it. And then, you know, you, but I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. You know, I, I just felt so responsible and it, Moz was so tied to my identity. I mean, you know, we, you open the show, right? And you're not like, Hey man, I'm super excited about Spark Toro. I love Lost and Founder. You're like whiteboard Friday. Right. People know me for Moz, right? Like yeah. Moz is so intrinsic to my external identity. It's it's hard to get away from. Dude, yeah, totally, man. And I, and, I, and it's so funny that I'm even caught up into it when it's even like the the world that I discuss. Because like, honestly, um, Rand, have you ever heard of a book called Finish Big? Finish Big. Yeah, uh, for all my listeners hear me talk about this all the time. Um, I'm going to pull it up. So for the listeners, I apologize because we're on video right now. Um, <laughs> I'm writing it down. So it's called Finish Big, and it's a, how great ex, uh, great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. And I, so I read this, and you know, actually, like let's put it this way, man. Like when we sold, ran, I had built out um, our managed IT services, and it was just gonna take off, man. And like, you know, like in its software, its processes, and people, and code, and all this stuff, right? Well, they didn't need it. So they literally shut down my servers after four years worth of like millions of dollars worth of work. And I'm just like, oh. I went home and honestly, like I broke down that night with my wife. I was like, yeah, no, I seriously, I was like crying. I was like, I don't know what the hell just happened. We got to check. But like, I have no identity. I have nothing. Everything I've done for the last seven years is gone. And so unfortunately, I read this book after that. <laughs> <laughs> and Isn't so, that how it always goes? Right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is what should have like randomly popped out of the sky. Like, and so Bo Birmingham, he's been on the show, and he he says that seventy five percent of entrepreneurs are unhappy twelve months after the sale of their business, regardless of how much money they make, because they it, it's so wrapped up into their identity. And well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a big, this is one of the biggest problems with the venture backed universe right is that it does it does not allow an outcome which is you know something like a bob's red mill right this is, this is always my favorite example right where he you know bob gets into his 70s he's like gosh i have this great company it's been profitable for you know, 40 plus years <laughs> love the product like it 
it brings these wonderful grains that they wouldn't already have into their lives and into supermarkets around the country and around the world. I don't need any more money. I want to give this to my employees. I don't know if this is the case, but everything I've ever seen Bob talk about, everything I've read says that like that this is one of the happiest things that, that you can possibly do, right? And, and Bob is just a, a guy who's thrilled with it. And it's not that way. It's a totally different objective, right? To- totally different objective, totally different mindset. I think this is this is the thing, you know, when you when you raise venture, everyone is going to say congratulations. Everyone is going to be really excited for you and proud of you and it is a huge, you know, check mark on your resume as an entrepreneur. I'm not totally sure that it it should be, right? But on the flip side, I think one of the biggest problems is that if you build a business independently, you bootstrap it, you raise some money from some banks, you raise it from, you know, angel investors, friends and family, you do, I don't know, Kickstarter, right? That that kind of press and accolade and admiration and recognition, it does not appear. Mm-hmm. Make $10 million and people are like, oh, or, you know, whatever. But if you raise $10 million, like you are, you know, sky's the limit. That's, it, that's it, totally messed up. That's no, totally. And like, backwards. well, then how about like making money? So like, it's, it's like, you know, you and I talked about it. So conscious capitalism, it's like, you have a profitable business. And by the way, another book, um, Small Giants. You heard of that? Yes. That okay, one so, I have on my shelf over here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Bo yeah. wrote both. Bo wrote both. So, um, and then I've interviewed uh, Paul Spiegelman and the whole thing is like, what is the purpose of the business? Right. And it's funny because I asked Bo, like, how can you grow a good company and exit on top? How can you do both? And it really kind of comes down to Rand. Like it's, he's like, well, kind of ESOPs. Like, which is what you say, sell to your employees. I mean, like, it, but there is no, like, I think there's, you know, in the whole VC world, and we can talk a little bit more about what you're doing with Tiny Seed and some other other things. Is like, there, there's just what does the money come with? And this is the whole issue with private equity because so many of the boomers. So, like, when you talk about selling to your employees, like, it's that's one thing, but private equity is kind of the same thing, right? So, there's a lot of Wall Street money that's out there where these are analysts. They've never ran a business before. They don't know what you know. So there's and that's a big generalization, right? Some of them have and all that kind of stuff, right? But and is their goal is a rate of return and especially where they got their money from. Is it an overfunded or over uh, extended pension? Then all of those motives drive down and it's like, oh, you still do a private, but it's like way different. It's in, I think it's, do you think it's the lack of understanding or the lack of exposure to like what the real issues are that are out there? Let's see. I think that there is, there are many problems that face entrepreneurs when they're when they're sort of considering potential outcomes. I think there's certainly um, over amplification and an overly focused culture, uh, and I, I mean culture like everything: all the people around you, all the News. you know, what are the websites writing about? What are the magazines talking about? Who's on the cover of things? Who's getting recognition? You know, who does Donald Trump meet with at the White House? Or just everything, everything. Yeah right? Focuses on this small subset of entrepreneurs who are lauded for their accomplishments and everybody else is kind of supposed to follow in their path. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there are very few examples like Erlingham's book, uh, Small Giant, right? Very few of those. But the weird thing about that book is you read and you're like, these are extraordinary. What, what amazing businesses. What incredible. Why have I never heard of this? <laughs> Why? Why don't they have, why are they not featured in the New York Times every other day? That's Mm -hmm. real weird, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that a failed venture capital business is going to be featured, you know, vastly more than seriously, right? There's actually a couple here in the Twin Cities. I want like that. They've just crashed and burned and they were on the cover of the Twin Cities Business Journal. Yes, yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, And I think there's also a... um, but part of this is understanding the the environment that we live in. So you mentioned bankers are behind it. I think that's a huge part of this, which is basically there's a ton of capital sitting around in very wealthy pockets, right? We all know that the mm-hmm. distribution graphs of income inequality over the last, you know, basically since Ronald Reagan was made president and, mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, rejiggered how the economies of the Western world worked. And as a result, you have these, you know, just trillions of dollars sitting in all these wealthy pockets and they, they are looking for growth, right? They're mm-hmm. looking for a, a certain rate of return, hopefully one that beats the stock market, right? Nope. Um, nope. And the stock market itself is looking for these rates of return. 
And so these dollars are just going to create incentives for systems that reward, you know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Apple as the, you know, the, the, the big few companies and the few companies that can become, you know, whatever it is, Airbnb or Uber or, you know, those types of giant IPOs, a, a Salesforce, a HubSpot, right? That's yeah, kind of stuff. Totally. Oh, there goes yeah. my tea. Uh, <laughs> you can get my hands too much. But, but, you know, we, uh, I think as a result of all that capital trying to find places to go, you get very weird incentives. You get a very, you get a market that looks really different, right? That's not interested in, hey, Ryan and Rand have this great business. It's growing at, you know, 20% a year. It's 30% gross margins. They're taking home 10% of the profits every year. They're loving life. They're building something their customers and employees are thrilled with, their partners are thrilled with. And the macroeconomic world is sort of going, oh my God, shut up. We don't care. <laughs> right? It's kind of like, go the F away. Right. Like, will you please stop distracting people from trying to find a way for our billions of dollars to grow at 12 or 13% year over year. It's something actually I talk a lot about. And I think, you know, the two worlds that we're talking about is the PE world and those big dollars are flowing now into the middle market of these baby boomers and the privately held companies. And so the experience that you went through with the VC, like it's the same experience that I hear with on the show or that you hear in like, the really terrible uh, stories of these P firms because they they come in and they so you and I could literally start a PE firm right now and we could go and say okay we're gonna take some money from Chicago's pension fund sure. they are way over collateralized with how much liabilities they have and then we're gonna promise them twenty percent well we're gonna go buy a company and then just flip everything on its head so these people have this issue that you and I both have gone through and other people have as well is that you don't realize what's gonna happen with your baby once you partner up with that with that money. And those intentions, right? Because everybody's got a master <laughs> and it just kind of comes with a way, way more baggage than you actually think. And in, in this way, I think venture is actually massively more friendly than private equity and growth equity in a lot of ways, right? Because venture is very much, hey, you run your business the way you see fit. You know, we're very hands off. This is kind of your North Star goal. Eventually, we, you know, we're looking for this sort of rate of return, but you're the CEO, you tell us how to get there. And we, we are going to be support you 100% until the day when we don't, and then we're going to look for a new CEO. Mm -hmm. Right? And that, so you, you, get a lot, you get much more carte blanche um, to try to be exciting and innovative. I, I think venture is a great model. I'm glad it exists. Mm -hmm. It just shouldn't be the only thing. Right. Private equity is the same thing, right? Like, I'm glad it exists. I think it should exist. There are definitely companies that can benefit from it. And there are entrepreneurs who are like, shoot, I need a way out of this business. I need to sell. Like, I've got to get an exit. I need to focus mm -hmm. on, you know, whatever, my family, long-term care for my parents, my, my kids, my, uh, my personal life, like what, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. There's dollars there that are ready to buy your company. Good. I'm glad it exists. It's just that these shouldn't be the only story. It's a very good point. It's it's just different tools for different purposes. And like, I think it's really trying to figure out what that purpose is for the listener, the owner, trying to figure like, what is it that I want? And then shopping and then shopping for the people within those industries too. And you're going yeah. back, Rand, like, like now, you know, you got your new, new gig that I wanted you to kind of explain. And honestly, before you even get into that, like how, and you're probably still processing too, right? I mean, I'm five, almost five years old and I still talk about, I mean, I was on a panel yesterday in front of 90 people talking about my exit. <laughs> Like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's wild that right these stories stick with you. Oh man, it's a part of your DNA after that. Yeah, how are you gonna do? And, and honestly, I'm struggling with it because, like, this podcast and GEXP, what I'm doing is be, kind of become me again, right? Yeah. So, like, is there a way that you know, like, what have you learned about the integration that you had with Moz? And how are you going to be approaching that differently to me? I, I mean, this is I'm actually asking you if you got some, sure. it's yeah. just like, so I, I think way I there's, there's two ways to approach this, right? One is to sort of have the emotional maturity to say, hey, my primary interest is, you know, either sort of financial or having a good work purpose. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to worry about the fact that I'm going to build something that someone could tear down at a moment's notice that could be gone tomorrow. I don't, I don't really care about that. That's not important to me. And I know going in that this is the case. And I now have the experience to know that that's the case. And okay, I, I'm set up for it. I'm ready. I think 
the expectations are the biggest problem, right? Because Ryan, you and I both felt like, no, we built this. This is this is why are you taking this away? It doesn't make sense. And you, you're not serving the customer. You're not serving whatever. But now that we have that experience, we could go in and say, like, yeah, I'm gonna work on a thing, but I'm not getting emotionally attached to it. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. The alternative is to say, screw that. I know that I like getting emotionally attached to my work, or I know that I am a person, a human being who cannot not be emotionally attached to things. Like that's just how I operate. When I meet people I like, I want to help them. I want to see them do well. I want their lives to be awesome. I want to bend over backwards to help them. And when I put myself into a business venture or a nonprofit or a seed fund or whatever it is, I want the same thing. So you know what? I'm just going to take my lumps. I'm going to set myself up for, uh, let me go invest only in businesses that I can control completely, where the outcome is something where, where there'll never come a day when I say, I didn't make that decision and it's the wrong one. So those are the two ways to play it. Right. And I Mm -hmm. think that the nice thing about having a career behind you, especially if it's giving you a little bit of financial security or some freedom or a great network or, you know, new opportunities is that you can be a little picky about that, right? You can choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. Not, not everyone gets to choose. And uh, you know, I think we should be cognizant of that too. There's a lot of people, plenty of entrepreneurs who basically have no choice, right? They, they need to make a certain amount of money to support their whatever family or um, friends or whatever they've done in their lives, partners, et cetera. Well, and then they get, or, or right. And, or that, that also, it makes a huge impact on like the choice that they have a when and how they sell to and to who and all this stuff. And like, I think the biggest thing that, you know, you and I have is that we've got another runway where there's, you know, you get in, even into the people that are in their fifties and sixties, where like, you don't really have round two necessarily, you know, to sort of reinvent yourself. It's a, it's a bitch for people our age. (laughs) You know what I mean? So to not think about like in, you know, like, what is it? Who are you going to be without your business? So, oh, going back to that finish big, uh, one of the one of the um, quotes that Bo has is people, and I like, I literally, I'm starting to finally be okay with this question is, Ryan, what do you do? Well, I used to, you're, <laughs> I used to be Maz. I used to do Whiteboard Fridays, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and yep. so it's like, and there's so much bullshit att- attached to that because yeah. you don't, you're not proud of saying that. You know what I mean? Like you're like, I mean, you could be like, I'm, I'm, yeah, like I'm you're, you're proud of the historical work, but then like the, the that's outcome, not you now. And, so much complexity, so much complexity involved in that. <laughs> right. What do you get? And, and it was all about, cause like in our society, we, we appreciate and attach to your career. Right. So like, and that's why, I mean, we don't have to go down some major rabbit hole, but that's why I think the retirement is total crap. Like it's like, you should be doing something that you're passionate and purpose driven so you can talk about it. Cause yeah. otherwise like, what do you do? Well, nothing. I mean, and, and some people are some very small people or a small fraction of people are okay doing nothing, but usually then they're family caretakers or whatever it is. But right. yeah, um, absolutely. so go uh, explain, you know, the thing that you're doing with Rob and the, the tiny seed and your kind sure, of sure. theory behind that. And then also your new business and how you're approaching that different. And cause I just think it's, the great yeah. lessons that you've learned and how you're approaching these is and putting the new le- the lessons you've learned into action. Yeah. So tiny seed is basically, you know, me saying, I want to put my money where my mouth is. If, if I'm going to talk about like, Hey, there should be alternatives. Hey, we should be, you know, creating other paths for entrepreneurs. Hey, there should be, you know, more than one way to build a software business. All right, Rand, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and you know, the, the answers are twofold, right? One, I created this company, Spark Toro which is a, has a very unusual structure, a structure that is totally unlike, it is not classic sort of like angel list structure. It is not classic uh, seed funding or venture path or PE or growth equity. It's a whole different thing. It's basically a partnership that uh, allows its investors, which are, which are mostly individuals, actually all individuals, uh, to participate in profit sharing, which is... Mm-hmm. Kind of a crazy throwback, um, you know, to a to a bygone era. Funny enough, that that is how venture capital partnerships work, though. Yeah. And and then the secondarily is to you know with with Rob and Einer uh, have this this fund. I, I am not involved in the fund other than sort of being a supporter and a cheerleader mm-hmm. um, and an investor. But to say like, hey, the Spark Toro path, they they looked at our docs and they actually used our attorney to replicate that and build a structure for 
a bunch of other software companies to be able to get funded in that fashion uh, through this, this seed fund, kind of as an alternative to a Techstars or a Y Combinator, those kinds of places um, where the outcome is focused on getting your business to a profitable, growing, sustainable company that can long-term be successful for you and your family and your employees, and also kicks off a percentage of the profits back to Tiny Seed so that it can return money to its investors and, and grow and fund more companies. So that's... And how does that... So how Spark so was it when I was looking on your website and everything, isn't SparkToro uh, an actual product or is that actually yeah spark toro spark toro i'm talking about the structure of it okay got it, got it, got it, financial got it. structure but yes eventually we will have a, a product it's it's in the web marketing software mm-hmm. field similar to moz you know plans to be a software as a service i feel like i learned a lot of lessons there and i can i can do that not in the seo field but uh, rather in uh rather in the world of audience intelligence so trying to help companies you know for example ryan if you said Hey, I have a podcast for, you know, for entrepreneurs. Where should I go market this podcast? Mm-hmm. Like if I want to attract more listeners and I want to grow our listener base, who, who should I get on the show? Um, who, you know, which, uh, which social media accounts do, uh, do entrepreneurs in Minneapolis or Minnesota mm-hmm. pay attention to? Uh, oh, hey, I'm going to be in New York for a week. Who do, who do people in New York pay attention to? Uh, what publications do they read? What events do they go to? Like, are there conferences that I should maybe be showing up at or pitching to speak at? Uh, what about um, podcasts that they listen to, other podcasts that they listen to where I should be checking those out, seeing what they're doing right? Uh, what about um, you know, other, uh, other websites that they frequently share? What are the sites that I could go do some advertising on or maybe write a so guest piece for? <laughs> you know, kind of like as your thing, it seemed crazy to me as I was helping a lot of startups that. You know, basically, whenever I'd ask, okay, who, who's your target customer? Reasonable question. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next question is, okay, and, and who, to whom and to what do they pay attention? Right? Like, where can we go reach that audience? And the answer is like, well, we think maybe it's this. All right, let's do it. Let's do a survey, right? We're going to mm-hmm. send out a big survey. And we, you know, we have to get statistically significant results and analyze and make sure that we got like good geographic distribution. And we got to make sure that we think people are actually answering the survey right. And they mm-hmm. never are. So how do we get that data? And, and so Casey and I were like, this is weird. Like this data is public. It's on the web, yep. right? You're, there's you know, not every architect, but at least 10 or 12% of architects who are in Los Angeles have public social and web accounts where they will share will you know, they're following yeah. people, they're following accounts, they're tweeting websites, they're linking to things, they're posting stuff on LinkedIn, they're posting stuff on Facebook, they're posting things on their website. You can crawl and aggregate all that data and then say, ah, here's what architects pay attention to. That's so important. <laughs> like, that, so how are you, uh, you know, going back to like, what, with this, with this uh, structure with Sparto, like, you know, you're, you got the passion, I can tell, to be able to solve another problem, which is awesome. And then you're tying your, you know, your energy and your love into it, right? And how, like, is there anything you're doing differently that going forward with this compared oh, yeah. to, to Maz? I mean, like, what would be the kind of the some big takeaways of how you're approaching this compared to what you did before? I mean, so two things that are super different. Uh, one is the company is just myself and Casey. We are not hiring anyone. We're trying to keep our expenses super low and our runway really long until we're confident that we have a product that people really want. Uh, you know, we built a little alpha. We've been showing it to some folks. The feedback so far has been like, this is interesting, but it's not, it's not like enough yet, right? Mm-hmm. It's not enough valuable data that I'd regularly use it. It doesn't provide me with everything I need. So we're, we're probably going to spend the next three to six months continuing to build out more sort of features, more data, more quality, work on the UI and UX. At, at some point, we'll launch it. And once we start to, you know, hopefully make some money, uh, get this thing going, then then we will grow, but try and maintain profitable or break-even status, which is really different from how a venture-backed company operates. Yep, yep. Second big thing is one of the lessons I learned at Moz was that the, the MVP model is a terrible one if you have a big audience that pays attention to what you do. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a terrible one because if you launch something publicly that sort of is like, well, it, half baked. 
Yeah, half-baked. It, it, it's decent. It accomplishes the problem. You know, some sort of innovators at the, at the very start of the, you know, whatever, crossing the chasm type of curve mm -hmm. can adopt it and they can use it and, and it's good for them. The problem is that everybody else who sees it is kind of like, oh, this is kind of junky and small and doesn't do enough and it's not that interesting. And that memory will stick with them for a decade or more. What, what I never see, what's crazy is I, ne I never see this. I never see, ne never saw this once at Moz where someone would go check out a new feature, new tool that we launched and they go, oh, oh, this looks like it might be promising. Maybe if they keep working on it for, you know, nine months or a year, I could see that it's turning into something really exciting. No, nobody thought that. But three years later, if you ask somebody about that product and you said, hey, did you, you know, have you checked out Keyword Explorer? They'd be like, oh yeah, I checked it out when it first came out, but it didn't do this. So I went back to using SEMrush. I'm like, wait, we came out with that like a month after launch. Oh, you did? What? I never checked it out again. It's very, it's a super good point, Rand. I mean, like, no, totally. I, and this is a really terrible example, but like, because my patience is very small for that kind of stuff too. And I have never used Apple Maps and so, and after the first time they launched it, <laughs> like it's, yes. the, it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, this is, you know, it's the, it's the same story. Like you, um, you know, I pick up a rental car and it's from whatever you know company. Oh, I have this little Chevy. I'm like, man, this thing is, oh, just this is terrible. I'm never buying one of these. And that'll linger with you for like 20 years, <laughs> yeah. right? It's so just, you'll just never buy. You just that make up your mind, and that's that, right? <laughs> that's that, right? Like yeah. it's all done. Yeah. And and I think that that startups many times can get away with an MVP because their audience is super tiny, right? And so they're not biasing, they're not losing a bunch of their market by having a bad early experience. And they can find a few of those folks, but you know. You know, not to, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, right? But lots of web marketers pay attention to the things that I put out. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I know day one when SparkToro launches, there will be 20,000 marketers who that is what they think SparkToro is for the next five to 10 years. That's a super good point. So, you, so I better put something out that they love, right? right like right. that is, that's a high bar. Wait, there's a lot of goodwill that you're dipping into. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the goodwill is very hard to come by. <laughs> it doesn't, no, it doesn't come back, right? Like it's, it's hard to gain, easy to lose. So if you were to, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff and I'm just curious, like if you were to go back and say, okay, this is what you want to rehighlight something, but, it, or just say, you know what, this is my biggest learning lesson out of exiting my own baby or, and starting afresh and new identity or anything like it would, maybe what, what would be some of the takeaways that you'd have? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of exactly why I wrote Lost and Founder, right? That mo most of it is like, okay, Rand of 2001, read this book. This will tell you all the things that you wish you, know, <laughs> you know, that you should have known. But um, I think some of, the, some of the biggest for me are thinking very carefully about, you know, what kind of, what kind of person you are and what makes you happy and motivated and feel successful rather than have other people think you're successful. And I also want to be fair to the fact that sometimes the thing that will make you feel successful is external validation. For some people, for certainly I had a decade in my life where all I cared about was external validation. There was not an internal Rand voice saying like, mm -hmm. oh, I, you know, I personally want this, even though no one else will really value that out in, in my world. No, I wanted to be in TechCrunch. I wanted to, you know, have venture beat right about me. I wanted the New York Times to put something out about Moz, all of that, right? And mm -hmm. okay, if that's your motivation, just admit it to yourself and be okay with that. And then, you know, go chase it if you need to chase it. Or alternatively, if you know that that's not the case, uh, try and have the self-awareness to figure out. Self-awareness is not like a thing, a light bulb you turn on. It is a you know, it's a dimmer switch and, and every day you have to work really hard to turn it just one degree. Mm -hmm. But the power of that is that eventually you come to know yourself better and understand what motivates you. And then you can invest in, in behaviors and in decisions, career decisions, personal decisions that work with that. Mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is the true path to happiness. I don't mean happiness like but but just you are content you're satisfied with the life that you've built you are excited to get out of bed in the morning you feel like you're accomplishing something that you can be proud of and you don't worry about the 
the external motivation because to you, you know what matters. Um, Very well said, man. That's well, a beautiful I'm, place no, to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in to, to even put some other color on that is I think so many people like, you know, when they even go or start planning for the exit or whatever the hell um, they are in their stages, like they get pushed into thinking that this is important. So many times I've, I've been on panels or I've seen panels, it's all about the dollar amount. When actually, if you were to ask half the people, it's like, it's not actually yeah. after this dollar amount, like everything else is gravy and it doesn't matter as much. And, but they have a hard time admitting it. So I think, you know, being true to yourself will help you stay strong in those conversations when you're trying to get pushed into directions that you don't want to be pushed in. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. I, and I think the dollar thing the dollar thing is funny. I think it's a lot like external motivation. Some for some people, that number is how they measure their life. And okay, right? If if like if you can't get over that, and that is the only thing that you can do, all right, sign up, be a finance bro. Like, go for it, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's kind of the path, right? Like that's yeah. that's where you, you generally yep. want to go. Yep. But if you can, if you recognize that there are things that matter more to you than that, and that. Money is a tool to help you accomplish X and Y and Z. What do you need to accomplish X and Y and Z? And then can you, can you take that pressure off of yourself and your company and whatever endeavors so that you can pursue other things that matter to you and the people around you mm -hmm. and the world around you? You know, I think that I think we, we as sort of a, a cultural society, especially statistically speaking, mostly younger folks, right? People who are, who are generally under that 50, 60 age range and, and, you know, it seems to be even higher in the under 30 bracket, that purpose is a huge part of life, right? And that you, you want to you know that you are contributing positively to a direction. When that's the case, there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of ways to align your economic purpose and your sort of life purpose. Mm -hmm. That is not out of reach. That is highly possible, especially if you're an entrepreneur, right? right. If you have the freedom and the ability to be an entrepreneur, which, which very few people do, Fewer and fewer stomach. people. Yeah, it's horrible, but fewer and fewer people every year. Like people think it's the golden age of entrepreneurship just because there's you know a lot of talk about startups, but there are fewer of us than there have been in the United States ever. And that number's been going down since the 80s, since mm -hmm. the 1980s. That's kind of disappointing. Right. But if you have the freedom, like we're the ones who get to do it. No, very well said. And um, so for the the listeners I want to follow Spark Toro, your new stuff, where do they find you? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, uh, sparktoro.com is where you can uh, check out sort of our blog and the product that we're we're planning to eventually build and launch. And uh, I am most active on Twitter, where I'm at Randfish, and I, I generally answer uh, most inquiries. You can also uh, check me out on, on LinkedIn and follow me there. I'm uh, slightly less active. Rand, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ryan, my pleasure. Uh, you're, you're a great interviewer. It's a pleasure to be here. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Rand. I mean, I had a blast talking to him and what an experience and what a wild ride that Rand has had. And I can't wait to see what he's going to be doing with SparkToro. But if there's a few takeaways that I have is one is that I just think that a lot of us as entrepreneurs, we just really need to figure out why are we in the business? What is the main goal? How are we going to find capital and partners to get us to where we want to be? And do we enjoy those people? And what's the whole point? What do we want this company to be worth? What kind of impact do we want to have? And if we really get our head wrapped around what that means and what we want, then we can actually put action to it in the business. Because I think so many times we get caught off guard when the, the money that comes with personality, as Michael from Zero Res had mentioned about it, or there's there's always hidden different things that are coming in to play, whether it's someone that you want to sell to or do a private equity recap or get money from a venture capitalist or have a partner. There's always motivations tied to the money and the motives and the valuation and the strategic plan. If you can figure out what you want, then you can tie it all together and then go get it. And I'm really excited to see how Rand actually takes a completely different approach with his new company because of the freedom that he's now got. So I think if I, there's any big takeaways is understanding what is it that you're trying to accomplish is objective number one. Then back into everything because there's a lot of technical ways to actually accomplish what you want. So if you enjoy the show and you enjoyed this episode, please go into iTunes, give me a rating. I absolutely would be indebted to you. I know it's a humongous pain in the ass, 
but it helps me get better people on the show. I want to constantly be bringing better guests, better content. So if you go on, give me a rating, it'll help with the cause. But also if you have a guest or a topic that you think would be very interesting for the show, reach out to me because every single week something comes out and I want to make sure that I'm always bringing the best content possible. So with that being said, I will see you next week. <laughs>